0: Hey everyone, very excited to share this episode with you today, but I wanted to add just a quick note onto this, just because of everything that's going on, uh, in current times right now, the reason that we decided to release this one instead of pushing it back, like we're doing with some of the others is that it is so timely, uh, in this particular episode, we're going to be talking to Michael Kitsis about his backstory and the work that he's done, which a lot of us have drawn on. Uh, As we've started to do, you know, modern day portfolio planning, retirement, drawdown strategy. But one of the goals that we had for this episode was to talk to Michael about adjusting your drawdown, adjusting your spending in the context of great markets and maybe in this case, bad markets, right? Flexible spending rules for the early retiree. And we're tying this to an episode that we did several weeks ago with Purple from a Purple Life, really trying to get a sense for in what environment would an individual in retirement, in what circumstances would they consider ratcheting up or ratcheting down their spending? What does the data tell us about when would be appropriate to do that? Make these decisions, not from a place of fear, but really recognizing, you know, the nuance of our situation. This conversation is going to hold a lot of value and let's go ahead and hop right into it. Welcome back to Choose FI.
1: You're listening to Choose F.I. Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online.
0: I'm super excited about this episode. We're getting the chance to talk with Michael Kitsis from Nerd's Eye View and Kitsis.com. And there's a couple of reasons that I think this episode is incredibly valuable. First of all, let me just give you the title again Flexible Spending Rules for Early Retirees. If you remember several weeks ago, we spoke with a Purple Life. We'll reference that episode shortly. But in that episode, Purple Life is approaching the age of 30 years old. I don't even think she's 30 yet. She's just hit a $500,000 net worth and she's going to be pulling the trigger and retiring. And you could say at face value, Well, that's dubious. I'm not sure if that, how that's going to work out for you, but I think what it misses is some of the nuance and actually the advantages that the early retiree has over the traditional retiree. And I'm not just talking about time horizon, 30, 40 years. I'm talking about flexibility. And I think flexibility can be a cliche word that you drop, but I think that if you actually say, well, what is that flexibility? And then you pair that with flexible spending rules it becomes a very powerful lever. And the reason I'm excited to talk to Michael about this is one, an article that he wrote in July, actually addressing this exact thing. We'll have it linked up in the show notes for this episode. But two, Michael is someone that is deep in academia, like he wrote at Nerds Eye View. But more than that, talking about a talent stack, this is someone that is accessible and understandable. This is someone that is able to take data that frankly is mind-numbingly boring and tell a story with it. And so for multiple reasons, he's the guy, he's the guy to bridge the gap and help us take the data and actually apply that data to her situation and say, does this make sense? Is this viable? What should she be aware of? And help me with this. I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How are you doing, buddy?
2: Hey, Jonathan, I'm doing quite, quite well. Yeah, this is a rare opportunity to really dive into the numbers with a true expert. And I think flexibility on the path to FI is something we have long talked about here. People who have the wherewithal to reach financial independence at any age, frankly, not less, maybe decades early. They in all likelihood are not just going to sit on a beach somewhere and kick their feet up and just call it a life. They're going to earn some money, add some value somewhere, do something productive. And I think that flexibility is often lost in the, oh, is fire a terrible idea conversation that we see sometimes in the mass media. And I think This conversation is going to provide some nuance to that. So I'm really personally very excited. So, Michael, with that, welcome to the Choose FI podcast.
3: Thank you, guys. I'm excited to be here and talk about FIRE, talk about FI and flexibility. I couldn't agree more, Brad, with your comments around not not just importance of flexibility, but the dynamics of flexibility, not only in, in spending, but just what you do with your time and the potential that you actually end out even putting some earnings and dollars back on the table. This was something that hit me pretty early in my career. You know, in addition to doing a lot of the nerdy retirement research stuff, I also just live in a world where I'm a partner back to an advisory firm and we do wealth management for affluent retirees. Having done that now for nearly 20 years, one of the things that hit me pretty hard early on with working with our clients is we would have these folks that would spend years and years accumulating, building, and saving dollars And trying to get to that point where they could retire, in essence, they were financially independent, but that they could retire at 65 or whatever it was that they had said is their goal. Maybe things went really well in their uh, lives and they're like, I got out at 60 and they would get out at 60 and they would retire and they would hang out for six months. And then they would realize they were insanely bored and there was nothing to do. And they were all excited about playing golf until they went to the same golf course and played the same thing four days a week with their same uh, three buddies. And they got really tired of the same foursome. And said, oh my God, I have like 29 and a half years of this left. Uh, I'm not feeling so good about retirement anymore. And they ended up like going back to work and doing stuff. Uh, You like go back to an old industry and started consulting or started a new business. We had a client who just decided she was a retired engineer and she really wanted to start making window treatments. She was good at making window treatments. She made them in her house. Her friends love them. She made a window treatments business on the side as a retiree. And money started coming in. To me, one of the first pieces around flexibility that I think often doesn't get well understood in this this journey to retirement and this journey to FI is that if she had realized up front she was going to have a window treatments business and make a little money, she could have been out two years prior. Uh, We had a client who was an executive who stayed in a very high-stress, lucrative, but very high-stress leadership position for kind of five more years trying to get to a certain lifestyle – Retired, realized he was bored and miserable out of his mind six months in, ended up going back and consulting in his old industry, making some pretty decent money at it, even working like a third of the time that he used to, and realized he could have been out probably five to seven years earlier had he acknowledged up front that – His time was not going to be completely idle, and some of it was probably going to end out in a productive manner that brings a little bit of dollars in, a minuscule fraction of what he used to earn, but enough that it dramatically changes the trajectory of sustainability of retirement or sustainability of FI. And just recognizing that flexibility, the fact that people overlook that flexibility, to me, is one of the first gaps that gets created, and it means people work later than they needed to, and they get more fearful about the financial risk of pulling the trigger Not realizing there's this income valve that they could turn back on and may even find they like to turn back on once they have the true freedom to say, you don't have to keep working the job you did. You don't even keep working the company you did. You don't even keep working the same industry. If you don't like that industry anymore, just find anything for a fraction of your time that earns a fraction of the dollars that you used to. And it actually has a really, really material impact.
0: You know, Michael, I think in many cases, and in many people, you might be one of the unsung heroes of the fire movement. And I say that, and that it's, your name is not a name that you encounter as soon as you hear about this idea right away. But if you realize all the stuff that we're talking about is credit, like we talk about the simple math, but the simple math is so powerful because it works, but the simple math is backed by data. And that data is something that had to be researched. And you did that research along with many other people, but you did that research and you were one of the first people to really advocate for it and make it so understandable that people like mad scientists could then do their own iteration of it and talk about some of the tools and tactics that we're using. And I say that to say that you are someone that clearly is an advocate for the FIRE movement, believes in this, and in many ways has taken advantage of it. I'm curious, what does FIRE, financial independence, what about that resonates with you? And how has that been reflected in your own journey?
3: So frankly, for me, it's much more the FI side than the RE side. Like RE is a choice of one of the things you might do if you get to the FI threshold. And part of this may be just a little bit of a bias of who we've historically worked with as clients in the financial advisor world. I'm based here in the Baltimore, Washington area, and the county we're in has the unique bragging right of having the highest rate of graduate degrees per capita of anywhere in the U.S., so we tend to have some pretty smart, well-educated folks. Lots of doctors, lawyers, engineers, researchers. We've got you know NIH uh, in the area. We've got like Jet Propulsion Labs in the area. Those super smart folks whose super smart brains don't turn off <laughs> when they're when they're not in their old job anymore. And just watching one client after another retire and get bored six months, twelve months, two years, five years into retirement. And then find that they want to do something to apply their knowledge and brains back into what they were doing previously, or in a different direction, or in some direction, and having a bunch of money show up because they start earning again, just, for me, really started to hit home that it's less about the RE. That might be a choice. We do have a couple of clients that just, they retire, and they're traveling around the world. They're seeing the sites, and they're doing stuff, and they're totally super happy and more power to them. They are never going back to any kind of work ever. <laughs> But that's a choice. And to me, I think one of the biggest frustrations that I just view as a frustration of retirement and started writing about this like 15 years ago, then FIRE movement came along and I think gave gave some, frankly, better words to it, better labels to it, is that the real threshold you're working towards is financial independence. It's the FI. It's the, I am at a point where what I do with my time no longer needs to be connected to the income that I make. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm at a point where I'm not going to go make any income. I'm just at a point where the way I spend my time doesn't have to have any connection to the income that I make. Now choose what you'd want to do with your open and flexible time. And some people do that in a a, call it an RE frame, like I'm done, I'm out, I'm traveling the world, I'm doing my thing. And a lot of folks, it turns out like, well, we actually want to stay engaged. We want to do something. We we got brains we want to go put to use. we got a service mentality we want to put to use. We like helping others and we've got the flexibility to be able to do so. And then we do a thing and lo and behold, it might even turn out to make some money and change the trajectory of the FI part in the first place. And And that to me is the most interesting aspect of how the loop closes, that it's not just, hey, you can get to financial independence and then decide what you want to do. Maybe you'll work, maybe you won't. It's that If you recognize that in yourself, that there's even a possibility you may end up doing something that turns out to bring a little bit of dollars in, you can suddenly pull your FI target forward by two years, five years, 10 years, sometimes more, because we create these worlds. And I I, I see it in in our retired clients when they're doing their 50s and 60s. I see it in the fire community when they're trying to do it in their 30s and 40s. Like We're trying to get this one giant, massive lump sum egg that will hold all of the spending for our rest of our lives, which could be decades and decades and decades, and you don't want that to run out and blow up. So we build these really big nest eggs and we make the really conservative spending patterns. And then we end out just finishing with way more dollars and accumulating more than we'd expected. And like, not that, oops, I have more money is an unfortunate surprise. The part where it hits home to me are the people that spend two, five, 10 years more than they needed to in work that they weren't happy with because they didn't recognize that they were close enough to say, if I do some work I like and make some money, that actually is a flexibility choice that completely changes when I can pull the FI trigger in the first
1: place.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because I think a lot of people look at almost like a worst case scenario. Let's say somebody who has a $60,000 annual expense target. So therefore at 4%, they're looking to save $1.5 million. But you're saying even if you make twenty grand, that's five hundred thousand dollars less you need in that pot, right? That represents yeah. a
3: full third of your yearly spending. Yeah, but like, it's it's this monster, right? Monster reduction, and and this, I mean, it's a fantastic example of seeing folks that are out there that are like maybe like they're in good jobs, they're in good incomes. They're making six figures. That's how they're, you know, living frugally and able to bank a whole bunch of money. So they're working towards this one or two million dollar pot, 1.5 million in your example. And they're so focused on like living as frugally as I can to get to that $1.5 million pot that no one realizes like if you merely took an 80% salary cut, you only need two-thirds of the nest egg you're shooting for. Like if your income just goes from a hundred plus grand to twenty. You only need a million, seven million and a half. Like that gets you there a lot faster. I love it. And and not only that, but it turns out you might even actually be happier (laughs) because you can do a thing that is gainful work that you actually like, like just. Most of us as human beings, we're not wired to just literally be idle and sit around and do nothing. So we may do that by having a call it an active retirement lifestyle. I like to travel. I like to volunteer. You know, you might do a whole bunch of quote work that's completely unpaid. And you know, more power to you if you want to do that. But I see it happen over and over again. People do a thing, and you know, particularly if you got say. 50 years of your life left to do it, there's a decent chance you're going to end up being pretty good at it. And it might even be worth something in the economic marketplace someday. And just a little bit of dollar, like $20,000 a year is like pulling half a million dollars off of what you need for the nest egg to pull the FI trigger in the first place. And like, that's a, that's a meaningful multi-year shift for most people.
0: So that's the macro level. Let's get a little nerdy, man. Let's go on the home territory here. And like, let's just talk about data. Yeah. Let's do Uh, it just just a little bit, just a little bit. We'll keep it simple. So I want to talk about safe withdrawal rates, which is what a lot of this is predicated on It's what a lot of your work was focused on. And I, just for our audience, I think it's important and I want to give you some scope here. I know you talk about things in terms of human capital and financial capital, and then how you allocate those and with safe withdrawal rates, the data that you pulled out was largely extracted from the Trinity study. And with that, and just, just, and I'll let you go deeper on this, but I just want to, I just want to set this up real quick. The 4% rule, as it was known, was applied to mostly traditional retirees. And it was a number that you could safely withdraw over a, I guess, a 30 year time horizon and not run out of money with a 90% plus confidence level. Maybe it was hundred percent, but anyways, the larger point being it was, it was a number that was in place to resolve the worst possible case scenario. What they were resolving was you would either run completely out of money right? How do we make sure you don't run completely out of money? But the, uh, there's also what is likely to happen. And then there was the fact that for the vast majority of people, they ended up with multiples of what they started with. So where, if we're talking about a $1 million portfolio, based on this article that I was reading of yours, the, the problem was we want to make sure they don't run out of money. They're probably going to have what they started. They might have as much as 150 million, depending on what cohort they find themselves in. That's crazy. Yes. And what do we take away from that? Knowing that we're not traditional retirees. Like we're not doing this at the age of 65. How does that change with regards to these withdrawal rates, with regards to flexibility, with regards to human capital versus financial capital?
3: So let me give me maybe a little bit more context or how I look at this. I kind of, I think about it a little bit iteratively. So the starting point, as you said, is the original 30 year retirement horizon studies. Uh, the Trinity study and a lot of us in the financial plan, our world actually looked back to the original Bill Bengen study that came a few years prior. The Trinity study did it on a Monte Carlo basis with randomized simulations. Bill Bengen's work did it with just looking at actual rolling historical periods from all the historical data that we had at the time. And you have to set it in the context of what was going on in the 1990s. So we were in a raging bull market, prevailing wisdom was that you could spend 7 or 8% of your initial retirement account balance adjusted each year for inflation, and you would be fine. Like, that was the discussion at the time. If you were conservative, you might have picked only 7%. Because, again, markets have been doing double digits for almost 15 years since the early 1980s. And so in this realm where everyone was talking about 7 and 8% withdrawal rates, Bill Bangin comes forward and says – well, you know, funny thing, I get that works with the recent returns we've had. And you know, if you just sort of look at long-term average returns, you get about six and a half percent as a as a sustainable withdrawal rate. But when I look at all the different time periods in history, it turns out that if you take that six and a half, seven to eight percent number, it actually crashes and burns a lot. Uh, not all environments as good as the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties have been. And so Bill's big breakthrough at the time was. Well, what if we just look at all the different time periods and see what withdrawal rates would have worked in all the different time periods? And a bunch of them, six, seven, eight percent works. Sometimes you get up at nine. Every now and then it's worse. And you might get down to five or even four something. And so Bing's original sort of formulation around a safe withdrawal rate was, well, if you want to figure out what would work, what would, quote, be safe? Well, a safe withdrawal rate would be just take all the ones that have ever worked in history, find literally the one worst one that we've ever had in history, and pick that one. So if we get a future that's as bad as anything we've ever seen in history. by definition, you'll make it. and if we get anything better, you'll be okay and you'll just have extra money. But like, that was the original framing, and you know, it was heresy at the time because he's publishing this idea that a withdrawal rate might be around four percent when everybody else was talking about seven and portfolios were earning 10 to 14. So you have to keep it in that original context that it was about ratcheting around, like literally was the worst thing that we've ever seen happen. Let's start there. And and I think part of the challenge, it shifted at some point in the in the general lexicon from this is a conservative assumption because it's literally the worst thing we've ever seen in history into... This is sort of a like, this is a mid level. This is a reasonable thing. This is a moderate thing. Oh, and you might go a little higher. You might go a little lower if you're conservative and sort of missing how conservative it is. And that's part of what we've tried to put some data out there just to recognize that if you actually start at this 4% rule, yes, there is one or two scenarios in history where you only barely made it for 30 years. Like, that's why it was the 4% rule, because that was the number that would make it all 30 years, even if just barely. But the median result, so 50% of the time, your million dollar nest egg turns into 3 million on top of all your spending. In the best case scenario, it turns into 9 million. Which means if we if we kind of look at the bookends, like the odds of taking a 4% rule and having no money left at the end is the same as taking a 4% rule and having nine times your nest egg untouched left at the end. That's a really wide variance. <laughs> like a really, really Really, life-changingly wide variance, and (laughs) we spend so much time focusing on the well. What if my million dollars ends out in the path going down to zero? That we seem to spend very little time recognizing, but actually, half the time you triple your nest egg, and you're equally likely to run out of money as you are to finish with nine times your nest egg left over. And that's just a thirty-year time period.
0: Yeah. So that that's all right. So you have set this up perfectly. So. There's less variables when you're talking about the traditional retiree. I mean, they may go back to work. In fact, there's some data in this article, which I'm referencing many, many times. And, uh, we will, we will obviously have linked up in the show notes, but in this article, you actually mentioned that entrepreneurship peaks in its forties. In fact, you see incredible levels of entrepreneurship to start in their sixties. So we can't completely write off the fact that even traditional retirees are bringing in additional sources of income, but let's just assume the traditional retiree with the 30 year window is not going to earn another dollar. At least you have less variables, but now when you're talking about this early retiree, so we're not confining ourselves to 30 years. We're saying we could have 30 plus 40, 50, 60 years and beyond. And some extreme examples, that's a massive window. What does it look like? What's the variance there? The best case scenario for someone with a 60 year window. <laughs> what does that do? So
3: first of all, when you start stretching now, bad scenarios get worse, right? If you get, if you get behind you start compounding even further behind. You drag a little bit further down. And so when we look at the safe withdrawal rate research, like if it's 4% for 30 years, it's only 3.5% for 50 years, right? We got we got to rein it in a little because you are tacking on some more years. You so know, kind of by definition, if there was a 4% rule scenario where you were just spending your last dollar in your 30th year, you can't do 4% for 50 years because if you went down that path, you would have been broke 30 years in your 50-year retirement. So the starting rule comes down a little. We go from a 4% to about a 3.5%. It's actually not a dramatic change because the reality of sort of how market sequences play out is if you survive some horrible thing in the first decade of your retirement and you get to the good returns that eventually follow, you usually get so far ahead off of the first big bull market cycle that the second bear market that hits you well into your retirement usually isn't very problematic like it hurts at the time but you're so far ahead from the intervening bull market that it's usually not enough of a pullback to be a threat it's mostly about i got to survive that first five or ten years however long it takes to get to the next long bull market that comes in the economic cycle and if i get to that one i usually kind of hit escape velocity and we're safe from that point forward but i got to rain back a little because i got to have a little bit more left to fire uh no pun intended if I'm going to go for 50 years and not 30. So the 4% rule comes back to three and a half. Now, the problem is if a 4% rule on average gives me almost 3 million after 30 years, and I pull my spending rate back to three and a half, and I allow another 20 years of compounding, a three and a half percent rule for 50 years, yes, in the one worst case scenario, it's just barely running out of money by year 50. That's why, why a 3% 3.5% rule becomes the number. 50% of the time, you multiply your nest egg by eight. So you go from 1 million to over 8 million, 50% of the time. Wow. Which is like, we're not only not conservative. like That's 50% right.
0: of the time. That's not even the best case scenario. That's No, just... no, that,
3: that's 50% of the time. So if we go out to the best case scenario. The best case scenario is your million dollar portfolio on top of your lifetime of three and a half percent rule spending goes from a million to 71 million dollars. <laughs>
0: Brad, your daughter's plan to be a trillionaire. Yeah, she's (laughs) well in her way. And
3: and I just, I can't emphasize enough. Like if you start with a million dollars at three and a half percent, 71 million dollars, which sounds like this like stupidly fantastical absurd (laughs) number for most people, the 71 is literally equally likely to the I'm running out of money at the end of 50 years.
2: Wow. Yeah. And Mike, I'm looking at your chart here and what's illustrative to me is, is Actually, the more extreme stuff. So the the fifth percentile. So 95% of people would do better than this. But the fifth percentile is essentially $2.3 million. So we're talking about...
3: 95% of the time, you accidentally double your nest egg on top of a lifetime of spending. Right,
2: on top of taking out that 3.5%. And and this really gets back to risk tolerance. So it sounds like, and and I'd love to hear the exact number, but 99% plus that you're not going to deplete your money. And I, I'm not sure what the exact 99.X% is. But I mean, if you gave me a bet and said it's a 99.6% chance, I would take that every single time.
3: I think the challenge that comes with the, like that whole probability of failure framing, like we do in the Monte Carlos, we do it in the, in the safe withdrawal rate studies. I actually think indirectly, this has become part of the problem, right? Because the minute you put failure on the table, right? Our, our heads all kind of go to the same place, like homeless under a bridge. Like my, li- I, I've all, uh, I've lost all my social circles. I can't connect to anything anymore. Like I can't do anything I like. I don't even have a home over my head. Like for most people, that that failure scenario is pretty painful for them, and nobody wants to get to that kind of failure scenario. Even remote chances for most people, you literally have to get to one or two percent failure rates. And most people start getting really concerned of like, yeah, I get it's remote, but that is so horrible. I do not want to take any chance of being there. And the problem, kind of getting back to the the conversation where we were talking about earlier, is these numbers that we're talking about, including the, you know, you got to take 3.5% because it it might just barely be failing in the 50th year. That's where the 3%, 3 3.5% rule comes from. That literally assumes that for the next 50 years or, you know, 49.9 years after you pull your FI trigger, like you are marching like a blind lemming and you will go straight off the cliff (laughs) without ever making any kind of change or adjustment along the way. Even though this is going to be telegraphed like 20 years in advance, that your nest egg is probably starting to spend out in a dangerous manner. It assumes that you are going to lemming yourself off a cliff. And the only possible solution is if you don't want to run out of money in the 50th year, 49 years earlier, you have to ratchet your spending down by a little bit more so that you don't lemming yourself off the cliff at the end. Like, I just don't find the conceptual framework valid from that perspective. I mean, I, I sit across from retirees. and uh, Like, that's what we do in our business. This is not how real human beings behave. I want to be fair. Every now and then, I <laughs> have clients who, like, really will just deny reality and but probably it, go straight off a cliff. But, but it's in the almost rules. Almost everybody else. Almost everybody else. <laughs> at some point, like, reality sets in and we start making some adjustments. And it's become such an impact to me that when I have retirement conversations with clients now, I don't talk about probability of failure. I've actually kind of banned the word from our lexicon. I talk about probabilities of adjustment. Because mm. that's what happens in the in the real world. If things aren't going well, oh crap, you pulled the FI trigger and 10 years in, it turns out there's another complete economic meltdown and things are horrible and like the whole world might be melting down. Like you got some stuff left, but clearly this is gonna have to change our lives. We don't just keep marching straight forward anyways and go, well, damn, it turns out another 10 years, all my checks are bouncing because apparently I ran out of money at some point along the way. Like horrible stuff happens and we say, well, crap, sucks, but I guess I'm gonna have to make an adjustment. And once you introduce the possibility of an adjustment, the whole discussion starts to change because if I told you, look, any retiree can have a hundred percent probability of success. It's really easy. Just promise that if something horrible happens, you'll drastically cut your spending. Won't feel good, but like I can always stop you from running out of money. Just drastically cut your spending. Now, not everybody wants to drastically cut their spending. So if I save a little bit more on my nest egg, I might not have to adjust as much to pull back. And it might be a little bit less likely that I need to adjust at all. But when you start thinking in those frames, it's not about a probability of failure. It's about what's the probability you'll have to make an adjustment and how significant would the adjustment be? The, the whole framework starts to change. And we had a client where we were going through this and they were one of those like, really conservative folks. You know, we, we showed them a plan with a 98% uh, a probability of success and they were just fixated on the 2% chance of failure. I Stop saying
0: out- failure, Michael. We use the word well, adjustment I- around here.
3: Well, and that was the that was my yeah. so like I'm talking about the two percent <laughs> probability of failure with them, and like I sort of had this crystallization moment with the client. Like I'm looking at their situation, you know their their life was like they go back and forth between a home here and a condo up in Rehoboth. You know we're in the Maryland area. Lots of people like to go up to Rehoboth, Rehoboth Beach. I point out something like you you realize if like the two percent scenario happens. All it means is you're going to have to downsize your Hoboth condo. Like, you're going to have to get rid of the mortgage there because you're going to have to relieve that cash flow. So, you're going to have to downsize to whatever you can buy with the equity in your existing condo, which was actually a decent amount. Like, they could buy something, it wasn't going to be the fancy condo they had. They're going to have something. It was like, so you realize, like, the only 2% failure here is actually just you might have to downsize your condo. You even still get to have a condo in Hoboth. You just might have to downsize the condo. And then it goes to 100%. And they were like, oh, well, that's not so bad. I mean, it would be a bummer. We really like the place, but like, ah, you're telling me I won't even have to materially change my lifestyle and then we're fine. It's like, yeah. And that was basically the last time I ever talked about probabilities of failure. <laughs> 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 we start talking about probabilities of adjustment and the and the next natural extension, which is what kind of adjustments are we talking about? Because that's the part we really don't spend much time talking about. How would you make adjustments to stay back on track?
2: Michael, with maybe that client in mind or or a similar client, what withdrawal rate are you looking at? Is it 3.5%? Is it 4%? Does it vary based on their age or other factors? Talk us through that.
3: So first of all, it varies quite a bit based on age and other factors. We had actually published a piece a number of years ago that was sort of our retrospective on like 20 years worth of safe withdrawal rate research up through the mid twenty teens, since we, we put it out a few years ago, that built essentially a chart of about a dozen different factors. That actually moved that number up and down. Because there's a lot that wasn't in the original research. And I don't mean that's a knock to them. Like, I published some of this research as well. Like, you got to start somewhere. So you start with simplified models and then you complexify them over time. But it didn't have fees in there, it didn't have taxes in there, which pulls everything down. But it didn't have much diversification in the original studies. You know, most of them were like large cap US stocks and intermediate government bonds. And most people have at least a little bit more diversification in today's environment like maybe we have small stocks additional large ones maybe we have a few international ones there's more types of bonds than just government bonds and and once you start mixing in diversification you start getting much higher safe withdrawal rates maybe a little bit higher maybe a lot higher depending on quite what you believe around diversification because we don't have great data for 100 years on some of this stuff but we know there's some positive diversification effect the only debate is how much Some people have more tolerance around risk. Not everybody starts in the same market environment. If you actually retire when stocks are cheap, the withdrawal rates are more like five and six. If you retire when they're expensive, the withdrawal rates are four. So there's all these different levers that move the safe withdrawal rate just on that basis alone, as well as time horizon. You know, we work with people who come in in their 70s. They're not even planning for 30 years. They'd be thrilled to get 20. And then we have folks that are in the FI community and, you know, we're planning 50 years. So that number moves all over the place on that basis alone. In practice, I find a lot of people start out with numbers anywhere in between around three and a half to up to about six, depending on, on how we move all of those different levers for their individual circumstances. The second effect that comes from it, just you know, a little bit more real world, is overgeneralizing a little. I find retirees or just sort of FIers... Um, tend to fall in one of two buckets. The first are folks that say, I've got this lifestyle and it's extremely important for me to sustain this lifestyle. I do not want cuts. I do not like cuts. I'm not going to tolerate cuts very well. And so we generally dial them to the lower end of the scale. If we're looking at anything with a range, like they're at the lower end of the range because just to me, fundamental to their that driving force for them they're certainly willing to move their lifestyle up if times are good everybody's comfortable with that for the most part but they do not want a risk of having things go backwards and so these would classically be folks where if you're coming down for for a 50 year fi yeah we're talking about numbers like three and a half uh granted it's equally likely that you have 71 million dollars is running out but running out is a total catastrophe to them 71 million dollars is a woohoo i'll find a way to spend it so they're okay with that trade-off they just say look if times get better. We'll ratchet our spending higher. And and I call these ratcheting clients or ratcheting rules. Like, we're gonna start with a number that's low enough that even if times are bad, we shouldn't have to cut. And if in the overwhelming likelihood things go better than horrible, we'll figure out how to spend more money later. Most people don't complain about that. The second group we have are the folks that I would call the more flexible spenders, where they say, look, here's the lifestyle I wanna have, but I've had some ups and downs in life already. So here's what I wanna do. And if times are bad, Here's what I'm going to give up. Here's what I'm going to rain back. Hey, if I can have a fat fire retirement and I can do lots of cool things, that's great. But if horrible stuff happens and I have to dial my lifestyle back a little, I'll dial my lifestyle back a little. I still want to pull the FI trigger. I want to order the fancy bottles of wine and stay in the high-end places. But if bad stuff happens, I will order less expensive wine and I will fly coach instead of first class and like, we'll be okay. (laughs) I can still live most of my lifestyle, but I'm going to give up some of my luxury expenses. I'm going to adapt my spending down. So if they've got some flexibility, to me, almost by definition, now we can start at a higher number. Now, I can't guarantee you if you start at five, it's going to stay at five because we've got some probability of adjustment. I love probability
0: of adjustment. That's my only lingo going forward.
3: Fantastic. (laughs) But if you're comfortable with that probability of adjustment and the magnitude of adjustment that would come thereafter, like how much of a cut are we talking about to get back on track? If you're comfortable with that, then almost by definition, you can start higher. You might have to adjust. (laughs) But you can start higher, and there's a decent chance you won't have to adjust and so I find most people kind of fall into one of those two camps, like I need an anchor lifestyle. I'm not willing to go backwards and I'm happy to ratchet forwards if it goes well, or I've got a more flexible lifestyle. There's things I want to spend on, but if I have to adapt the numbers down, I can adapt the numbers down and and I tend to think of it in terms of so I, I call them adaptive expenses. I still don't love the label. I'm trying to find the right label, but not. Like essential versus discretionary, which is how a lot of the industry, uh, I think historically, has talked about this. Because again, just saying cross retirees. If I went to someone and said, "Hey, well, the good news is you're not broke. You still got food, clothing, and shelter. Unfortunately, you're never going to be able to afford to travel again. You can't eat any of the restaurants you like, and you won't even have the budget to see your grandchildren." Uh, for most people, that is still a retirement catastrophe. You're not homeless. But I have obliterated the lifestyle to which you are accustomed. I can't take all of your discretionary expenses away and say, hey, at least you're not homeless. Retirement worked out because for most people, if that's what they're staring down, they're like, hell, I'm just going to work a little longer and save a little more money. I don't even want that on the table. But often we have adaptivity to our expenses. So it's our clients where the adjustment was, well, you might have to downsize the condo. And it, it's it's your second home in the first place. We'll we'll be okay. That was an easy adaptation for them. For some clients, like look, we like eating out at nice places. We'll eat out slightly nestle,
0: You're less. You're back places. to Chipotle.
3: Yeah, I I like traveling fancy. We'll dial it back a little. I'm gonna stop ordering the sweets. I'm just gonna uh, dial back. You know, we had a one very affluent client. The breakthrough for them in the financial crisis when they lost a significant amount of wealth was like, here's an idea to rein your spending. Just fly first class. Stop renting jets. that that, that was that was their version of adaptive (laughs) expenses right we didn't want to get rid of all the discretionary stuff and be homeless which is sort of the vision that was in their head like we need to adapt expenses a little but they were still traveling they were still doing a lot of the stuff they like to do it was like we just have to adapt it down a little let's stop renting private jets and just fly first class so there's an adaptivity level that a lot of us have in our expenses. You know, the the more we spend, usually the more room there is to rein that in. If we're a little more frugal, there's a little bit less give in the first place. But for the people who have some adaptive flexibility to their budget, I can take these line items like housing and food and transportation, entertainment and travel and the rest, and I could rein them into a thing where I still do stuff I like to do, but in a less expensive manner, are the folks that I would generally say, fine, then we can start out at a higher number. We don't have to sit down at three and a half we can go to four, we can go to five, even for 50-year plus FI scenarios. But you have to agree to the uh, to the adaptivity. You have to agree that if stuff starts moving the other way, you got to be ready to actually rein that stuff in. And if that's not going to sit well with you, we ain't starting at the higher number. We're starting at the lower number. And then to each their own about how comfortable they are in being adaptive. Just I've seen a lot of human beings go through this path, and some really are, and some really are not. And to each their own, just you know, know yourself so you don't set yourself up for a tough scenario.
2: So, Michael, you talked about the adaptive flexibility there, kind of on the potentially downside or cutting, but a handful of minutes ago you talked about ratcheting up. You're talking about that five person who has a 50-year time span. Maybe they start at 3.5%, but you said if things are going well, maybe they can ratchet it up. And I'd love to hear you talk through that scenario, what people would be looking for, what milestones what percentages, numbers, et cetera. Talk us through that.
3: Sure. So I think there are a couple of different ways you can go about this. The original ratcheting rule that we made in some of the work that we published was just super simple. If your portfolio gets up 50% from where you started, give yourself a 10% raise, check back every three years. Like, it's pretty simple. I can, I can, I can keep track of this. Basically, I only need two or three numbers and a little bit of math. You know, if you get that far ahead, so you built a cushion, which means even if there's a market pullback, it's only pulling back on the cushion. You can give yourself a raise. Now, if you ratchet up every single year in a bull market, then the bear market may hurt you a little bit more. So we said, don't ratchet up every year, check every three, and you're off on a good path. So that's one version. That's kind of a pure ratcheting strategy. When you got a cushion, give yourself a raise. As long as you got the cushion, keep giving yourself raises. The second way to go about this are what I I like to call guardrail rules. And so I, I sort of think of this like, uh, so I've got I've got three little ones. Uh, we take them bowling every now and then. And so, well, uh, when I was growing up, when little kids went bowling, you had bumper lanes where they would actually have these like giant inflatables that you would blow up and put in the the gutters of the bowling alley. so you wouldn't get a gutter ball. Uh, now it's all modern with technology, so these little rails just pop up, block the gutters when the kids are up, and then the uh, rails pop back down when the adults come and bowl. And so when my kids go to the bowling alley and they get on the bumper lanes. One of two things happens. So either my daughter grabs the ball, rolls the ball down the alley, gets a fairly straight roll, goes to the end, hits the pin. She's all excited. She does her little dance. Or she rolls the ball, it drifts slightly askew, hits a bumper, bounce off the bumper, goes back in the middle lane, hits the pins. She is equally happy, has no <laughs> context as to even the significance of having hit the bumpers or not because there are no gutter balls in her world in the first place because we have bumpers in place. All she knows is every time she hits the pins and she just wants to see how many fall down at the end. Every role's a win. You can do the same conceptual framework with your retirement spending. You know, our our role of the ball is whatever our current withdrawal rate is. And our bumpers are just extremes on our withdrawal rates about how much you're willing to let it vary. So I might start the role, uh, you know, with a lot of our retiring clients. So we're talking like 30-year time horizons, we might start the ball rolling at 5%, but we put bumpers in at four and six. And we say if at any time during the first 15 years, because that's sort of the danger zone. If at any time in the first 15 years, you veer so far off track that your withdrawal rate either goes above six, which means your spending is outpacing your portfolio, which is bad, right? We don't want our spending to outpace our growth. Uh, If your withdrawal rate goes above six, you got to take a 10% spending cut, which I find for most people, like 10% hurts. It's not pleasant, but it's manageable. I, I I got some flexibility in my budget. I can handle this. If my portfolio outpaces my spending so my portfolio is growing my spending relative my portfolio is dropping my withdrawal rate is five then four and a half then four and then it drops down to three something if i get under four i've hit the guardrail on the other end this guardrail bounces me back into the lane by giving me a 10 percent raise and so now i've got an adjustment system in place we're going to start your roll at five we're going to keep you between four and six and we'll see what happens i don't know what particular market path you're going to get i don't know what market returns are going to be but i know by definition you're never going to be outside of four and six and i know by definition you actually can never run out of money in this scenario because at worst you'll just keep hitting the bad guardrail and reining your spending in until you get down to a cruising path that's comfortable for you now the one caveat to this unlike traditional bumpers so when my little boy goes up there like He'll take the ball and, like, wing it at the left bumper as hard as he can because he actually wants to see if he can wing it off the left, bank it off the right, and then go down and get the pins. Uh, (laughs) You don't always get the zigzag pattern. You can kind of roll a curveball where it hits the bad bumper, then spins off, hits the bad bumper again, spins off, hits the bad bumper again, right? That's what happens if you get, like, a really horrific protracted bear market that lasts for several years. You know, your withdrawal rate might rise up to six, and then you cut your spending, but then the portfolio falls again and your five and a half withdrawal rate turns into a six something again. So you got to cut again. And then the market falls further and you might have to cut a third time. So recognize you could hit the bad bumper more than once, but if we've got some flexibility, right? If we've got some adaptive expenses that we're able to rein in, then I can start putting some guardrails in place. And I know I'm not going to run on money. I just have to be prepared for the probability that we hit guardrails and have to start making some adjustments. And where you set the guardrails then, you know. frankly, we need some modeling tools to do this. We certainly don't have good tools in the financial planning software world. Perhaps uh, someone who's listening to this who's an engineer and a software person will, will build it into FireCalc or one of the others. I think what we end out with is you get some parameters around this. How wide do you want to set the guardrails or sort of narrow in? The narrower they are, the more likely you hit them, but the narrower they are, the less dramatic the changes have to be. If I make really wide guardrails, you'll hardly ever hit them. But if you veer that far off track, it's got to be a really dramatic spending adjustment when you get there. So again, to each their own about how wide or narrow they want to set the guardrails and, and how much of a change they're willing to make when they get there. But conceptually, that's about where we start. I find this framing of plus or minus 1% of a withdrawal rate seems to be a pretty good number. Just in practice, it takes a pretty dramatic market event to move you that far, but you can it can happen. So be prepared for adjustments to happen. And again, it it gives us a rules framework to know how we're going to adjust and handle the spending going forward. Now we just have to see how it unfolds. But the key part is, if that's your strategy in the first place, you don't have to sit down at 3.5%. Now, if you start higher and bad things happen, you may get knocked back down to what would have been 3.5% originally. But bad stuff doesn't always happen. If bad stuff doesn't happen, you just start out spending more and keep doing it for the rest of your life.
0: So Michael, that really sets us up. I'd love to take this framework and actually apply it to a case study. And I have, as an opportunity, I have a case study that's a little bit more extreme as an example. It's really perfect to apply this to. Uh, Several weeks ago, it was episode 169 for our audience. We interviewed a Purple Life. She blogs anonymously at a purplelife.com. Because of that, she's radically transparent with her numbers and with her retirement plans, which are to leave the workforce next year with the nest egg of about $500,000, two years in cash. She has plans for healthcare. If she goes back to work at some point, she's open to that. She's built a skill set as a blogger. She could probably monetize that. She works in marketing. She could get another job in that industry if she ever had to go back. She feels confident about her healthcare plan. She also feels confident with geo arbitrage. She's 28 years old. She would qualify technically for Social Security. She's not building it into her plans as a 28-year-old.
3: Sure. Uh just barely got her 10 years of uh of credits.
0: Just barely, right? Yeah, just yep. barely. So now she's leaving and and She's walking away with this two years of cash, this $500,000 in her investments and kind of applying these flexible spending rules, how it might apply. Like for one, like the worst case scenario, we want to make sure we don't run out of money. We're okay. Going back. You talked about adaptive expenses, really in the context of adjustments and flexible and being flexible. The other part could be adaptive income, right? The willingness to go back to earn additional income. If you need it, what, as you kind of apply this framework to that case, and admittedly one of the more extreme case studies that I've heard, I think there's incredible value here for our audience to hear that just because she's starting with 500,000 does not mean, because she's so young, does not mean that that is gonna be her final number. Like, how do how would you process this?
3: So there's a few things that jump out at me in a, in a scenario like this. I mean, first, just, I'm sure everyone's starting to like, do, do the math or pull out their yellow pad. You know, $500,000 at three and a half percent is about $18,000 a year or $1,500 a month. So uh, I guess, Plus healthcare that she's got sorted out separately. So, just does that math work for her? That's a pretty frugal lifestyle for most people almost anywhere. So, does that work for her? I guess if it works for her, it works for her. So that's her call. But you know, I think that's the first question that some people are asking. Now, I would be looking at this again and saying, "Holy cow, you're 28. How do you really feel about never doing work again for the rest, for the next 60 or 70 years?" work 10 takes 70 off is not really like, it's just not quite how our brains are, are wired. So I would be wondering, asking questions like, is there really some likelihood that you're going to end up working again at some point? I mean, heck you're doing this blog thing. Do you highly
0: likely, highly likely.
3: Do you want to keep doing the blog thing? And I mean, you can dial it back a little if you feel like it's been too intensive, but you know, you got a cool story. There's going to be some people that want to follow it. Uh, You can have some advertising or affiliates or some other things on there. Like, is there other money coming in that either we can consider or just that we can spend? Uh, One of the ways that I see a lot of people do this, even in the, the, I'll call it the traditional retirement realm, as well as the FI realm, is kind of segment their spending a little to say, look, I've got this nest egg. I'm going to do my withdrawal rate off of it. That kind of covers baseline expenses. And I'm comfortable with that. And if I decide to go work a little bit more and do a thing, any of that money I get, that's gravy money, that's spending money. And so you want to take an extra vacation, get a gig, get a, get a marketing gig, get a consulting gig, whatever, whatever she's doing in her space, like get a gig, get some money, take the money, spend the money to me. Like her lifestyle certainly has upside potential just on that basis alone. And really for someone that's looking at fire this young, I have to admit, just like hearing the scenario I come much more to what she's going to do with her time for the next 70 years than what she's going to do with her portfolio for the next 70 years. As we've sort of discussed here, if she's got any flexibility in your spending, maybe she could start at a little bit of a higher number. Now, when I hear someone that's spending at these levels in the first place, unless she does some pretty extreme geo arbitrage to really bring expenses down, I would be worried she doesn't have a lot of adaptive spending flexibility when we're already starting here. And so I really would probably have her down at the lower end of the withdrawal rate scale because I would be nervous that if she starts higher, it may be difficult or uncomfortable to trim. But she's got a skill set as a marketer and a blogger. She's good enough at it. She's been able to put a really great nest egg away before she's 30. What on earth is she going to do with the rest of her time on earth? And can we make some realistic assumptions or at least just have some conversations of what are you going to do if some earnings show up? at some point, both because it's additional money and just from the the nerdy technical perspective, additional work for her at this point actually has a monstrously positive return for Social Security purposes. Uh, Social Security calculates its benefits based on your highest 35-year average of earnings. Her Social Security formula will basically be 10 years of earnings and 25 zeros (laughs) because that's her high 35 if she's out of the workforce for the rest of her life. And so each year she works with any level of money is averaging into that formula, replacing zeros with working years. And when your income is that low, you are still in the first uh, replacement tier of social security, which gives you a 90% replacement rate on your income. That's how the social security benefits calculated until your lifetime earnings are more than $10,000 a year. And she may not be much above that if she's going to average in 25 zeros. Even the second tier is a thirty two percent replacement rate, which isn't bad for your your dollars going in. So she's got to me a a double return on any level of work that she does <laughs> that not only is it additional money that she can earn and generate, but there's actually a really favorable ROI on social security benefits when you have worked this few years and you have this many zeros in your social security formula.
0: Now, from a guardrail and adaptation perspective, let's just play this out a little bit. So you're at a 3.5% withdrawal rate, you know, on a $500,000 nest egg. So you have two years in cash and without judgment on whether or not your life will scale up or down or be more expensive or less expensive for the sake of this scenario. I want to talk about that in the context of ratcheting now that we actually have some numbers in place. So let's yes. say we are at all time highs, right? And I say that, you know, the market is usually at or near the all time top until yep. it's not. But let's just say yeah. she retires and then with the, the next year just drops. Let's let's bank on 30% drops. She's got one year covered. She's got two years covered in cash. But now she's comes to that end of the year and she's refilling, I guess, her buckets if we're doing it that way. And she's doing it while the market is still at this 30% drop. How do we implement these guardrails and these flexible spending rules to account for, one, that possibility, but then to the other side of that where the market goes up 30% and just keeps going up and up and up. And you just sort of looking yep. down at where you started.
3: So if we're going to do this on a ratcheting methodology, which, which I, I think is reasonable, is kind of the, the way that I would I, I would lean here, just hearing this scenario. And again, just wondering how much room there is to cut from here in pullbacks. So on a ratcheting strategy, you know, for nest eggs $500,000, 50% ahead on that would be $750,000. So if a portfolio gets ahead enough to be at 750,000, she gets a 10% raise every 3 years we keep looking and so if the market starts off well uh you know she's starting out around $18,000 with the spending here if the market starts off well and her portfolio gets out of the gates well uh initially and she gets up to $750,000 like she gets a 10 percent raise over and above inflation so you know her 18 jumps up to almost 20. if it's still ahead three more years after that she gets another 10 percent raise to 22. if she gets if it's still ahead of three years after that she gets another raise up to 24 plus so you can just start ratcheting it up which again recognizing for most people in these scenarios is is overwhelmingly likely and and i'll admit even in our ratcheting research you, know, we were largely running it over thirty-year time periods, not fifty-year time periods. Uh, I suspect, actually, on a fifty-year time horizon, we would probably have to create a second ratcheting tier that says, like, if she's you know more than doubled her nest egg, she's up to a million dollars. They're not ten percent increases; they're twenty percent increases because over fifty years, there is such a compounding likelihood that at some point we'll hit the next bull market and her portfolio hit like escape velocity to the upside. <laughs> And our withdrawal rate falls to like three and two and a half and two, if the markets really start compounding upwards, you just have to survive that kind of risk of pullback in the early years. Now, in terms of risk of pullback in the early years, like uh, as as the question you asked, what happens if it goes the other way? So the whole point of these baselines around withdrawal rates, 4% rule, 3.5% rule for longer time periods, is that the whole point is that's the number you use and stick your spending at. Even if the market falls off the cliff in the first few years. Because A, at some point, eventually, you know, what goes down comes up again. And you know, if the whole economic system is broken, the market's going to go down forever. We've got a whole other set of, of third world problems coming up. You know, assuming that at some point the economy gets growing again, eventually the rising tide lifts all boats, three and a half is low enough that heck, if the market basically gives me nothing for 10 years, I mean, let's get really long. If the market gives me nothing for 10 years and I'm only withdrawing 3.5%, I'm still going to have 60% out of my portfolio left 10 years from now for what by then is probably going to be a pretty tightly coiled spring for a potential bull market. Because if I've been getting no returns for 10 years, stocks are getting pretty cheap.
0: All right. So to clarify, I just want to point out for our audience what you just said there and make sure they slow down on that. So for her, and again, we are not assuming, we're not placing any judgment on whether or not that spending is going to be maintained. We're just saying, all right, That's what she says she needs. She's living on 18, five. Maybe let's just say it's somewhere in the 18,000 to $20,000 range. That's what she needs. She has two years of spending. And if on in cash set it, so it doesn't forget whatever the market does. She has two years covered there. And then from there, if she's drawing out this, what she's chosen 3.5%, which for her, and this is the important part it's not 3.5% of the portfolio it is on that first year but then that basically says if the if the market drops 25% 30% whatever she can continue to take out that 185 it's not 3% of the current portfolio value it's still that 185 now Correct. combined she has 12 years and so the question is what is the likelihood that the market comes back in a roughly 12 year period of time if the answer to that is it likely will she's good to go and that assumes no adaptation on the income side that assumes she's not going to go back to work. She's not going to earn another dollar. She's not going to use the skills that we just laid out. If you understand the rules, Michael, like I feel very confident for her in the context of, you know, what we're describing here.
3: Yes. And I would feel confident for her without the two years in cash. I mean, aside from the fact that just two years in cash means her nest egg actually isn't 500. It's a little bit more than 500. I think there actually is a little bit of a misconception out there around even what sequence risk is and what the threat actually is, the threat of sequence risk is not a crash in the first two years. It's actually not because we're withdrawing three and a half or four percent a year. So you know she'll have spent seven percent in the first two years. She'll have spent ten and a half percent in the third year. So whether she has the cash bucket out there or not, the question of, well, what if she only has 89% of her principal working for her instead of 93% of her principal working for her? is not actually that material over the next 50 years when, on average, she's going to 8x her wealth. You know, the, the first few years, it's not just about a bear market that happens to hit because the reality of these low withdrawal rates and why the withdrawal rate ends out at 4 and 3.5% in these scenarios is because it's so doggone low that- almost, air quotes, almost all your money is still invested (laughs) and still there to participate in the growth and still there to participate in the recovery. Like Again, that's the point of where these numbers come from. I mean, just to put it in context, on a 4% rule for 30-year time periods, 4% rule if you retired in 1929. The first three years of retirement for a 1929 retiree was an 89% market decline from top to bottom. So with an 89% market crash, 4% rule worked. For a 30 year time horizon. Now, to be fair, we weren't 100% in stocks. We had a balanced portfolio with bonds, and bonds do well when markets well down. That's part of the point of diversification. But an 89% market crash with some diversification to bonds didn't break a 4% rule. And that portfolio took over 15 years, over 15 years to make new highs. Like you had to get, if you start 1929, you had to get past World War II before the recovery came. And the first 15 years of your retirement was a decade of a recession plus a global war and 4% rule still worked. So yes, in that intervening time period, your initial withdrawal rate that was 4% ended out creeping much higher than 4% relatively quickly when the market went down. But that's fine. The point of 4% rule is not 4% every year. The point of 4% rule is this spending number is low enough that when you unleash a economic catastrophe on your retirement, not for the first two years, but for the first 10 to 15, there's still enough money there when the good returns finally show up 15-odd years later, because eventually things get really cheap, that you're able to then carry the subsequent years, carry the next bull market cycle because the late 40s and the 1950s was a huge bull market cycle. You had enough left to then carry through because the big bull markets are what you get for 10 to 15 years of misery. but the important thing to understand is it's really not about one- and two-year market crashes. Uh, you know, If you retired in the summer of 1987, right before the crash of 87, you took your first withdrawal in the September of 87, you took your second withdrawal in the September of 88, your second withdrawal was at a higher portfolio value than the first withdrawal. You literally wouldn't have even seen the 24% market crash and the worst market decline in a single day ever because we're only pulling these checks once a year. And by the time you got to the second year, the market had fully recovered because it was a sharp V. So it's not necessarily about a market crashing in the first year or the first year or two. It's Technically, it's about the speed of recovery much more so than the crash. So if I V down in one or two years and then V back up in the next one or two years, the long-term impact of my retirement spending is pretty negligible. If I decline the first few years and it takes me 10 to get back, because that's what happened if I retired in the late 1920s, the late 1960s. Those are actually the danger scenarios, and it's it's actually less about how sharp the decline is and just how mediocre the returns are overall. I can give you growth every year for the first ten years. If you only get one percent a year for the first ten years, you're actually still in a scenario where you're going to be really thankful you were only doing a three and a half or four percent rule, and you never lost any money. But ten years of mediocre returns is the real problem scenario, and and I point that out for two reasons. One, you know, strictly speaking, you don't have to freak out even if there's a market crash out of the gates because it's really more a matter of how quickly it recovers than whether it it went down in the first place. But the second reason I point that out is if what you're really trying to protect against is a mediocre decade, two years of cash actually doesn't do much for you. In fact, just like good old-fashioned balanced portfolio. like If her nest eggs part in stocks and part in bonds and we have a horrible market crash in the first two years, she doesn't need a cash bucket. She's got bonds. They're going to be up. It's what government bonds do when the market crashes and there's a recession <laughs> and things go down. There's a flight to safety and bond prices rally. So you don't even necessarily need the cash when you're worrying about bad decades because two years of cash ain't going to solve a 10-year problem. And you don't really need the cash if you've got a diversified portfolio because that's what the bond part is supposed to do. Uh, it's not there to be a return engine, particularly in today's low-yield environment. It's there to be the thing that does well when everything else goes down and you know, even as we look at this and talk about this with a lot of retirees who really hate owning anything in bonds because the yields are so low, You know, as we'll usually frame them, like, we're going to have an allocation for bonds. And you know what? I hope they make you no money for the next 20 years. Because if they do, your stocks are tanking. That's actually probably not good. I hope they don't make any money for you. Because you know what happens if they don't make any money for you? Markets probably doing great. And you're already on the path to 2x, 5x, 8x your money, because that's what happens when stocks compound for multiple decades. The bonds are there to actually be that ballast. It's much more about 10-year mediocre returns than two-year market crashes. And the whole point of the approach is your spending is low enough that even if you get the bad sequence and temporarily your withdrawal rate rises, it's okay because it weathers 10- to 15-year storms. That's where these 4% and 3.5% rules came from.
2: Michael, you've been talking a lot about diversification. and, And looking at a lot of the research, it's generally... 60, 40, right? So 60% equities, 40% bonds, but you did some analysis based on 80% equity and percent likelihood of, of success. And we talked before about the fifth percentile at 50 years, three and a half percent withdrawal at 60, 40, and it was 2.3 million, but that fifth percentile goes up to three and a half million at 80% equities, which I found fascinating. I'd love to hear you talk through that.
3: Yeah. So optimal portfolios overall, we sort of get this strange. I'm going to talk about this in terms of stocks and bonds because it's a little easier to just talk about two asset classes and not not try to mix a zillion of them together. Suffice it to say, more diversification, it all works better, at least a little bit. When you look at different asset allocations for safe withdrawal rates, and I'll start with the 30-year time period and then then sort of jump to the the 50-year. With the 30-year time period, what we see with asset allocation is if I were to draw a graph of your asset allocation from 0% in stocks to 100% in stocks, and then look at what is the withdrawal rate that works, what you get is a shape that looks like an upside-down U. So if you have very, very little in stocks, your withdrawal rates aren't very good. The reason is high inflation like the 1970s is devastating if all you've got is bonds. If you go really, really heavy in equities, your withdrawal rates are worse because now you get scenarios like crash in 1929. If you were all stocks and you rode that all the way down 89%, this is not going well for you. And so what you find is the the peak is in the middle. And it depends a little bit on what data sets and assumptions you use, but you basically find the optimal uh, exposure is somewhere between about 40% and 70% in equities, much lower than 40 and inflation becomes too much of a risk, much higher than 70 and severe bear markets actually become too much of a risk. The balance point in the middle really is better than either tail. Now, when you stretch the time period further, you go from 30 years to 50 years. That whole chart kind of shifts to the right a little bit, and your optimal equity exposure shifts from a roughly 40 to 70 percent level up to about a 50 to 80 percent level. Uh, sometimes even as much as 90 percent, depending on whose data you use. But you know things like crash of 29 or. If your data goes back that far, that was a pretty, pretty horrific scenario. So it usually limits how much you want to go up on equities. And again, the more conservative your spending is, right, if we stretch our 30-year time period out to 50 years and we take our withdrawal rate from four down to three and a half, we get even a little bit more room to have a little bit more equity growth in the long run because we're pressuring our portfolio a little bit less in the first 10 years if we get one of those bad uh, 10-year cycles. And so when we look at 50-year scenarios, we do start finding optimal equity exposures for supporting withdrawal rates stretch out more to something like 80% in equities than just 60% in equities. And as we sort of showed in that in that chart, your worst depletion year is still very similar. You're like at three and a half percent rules for 50 years. You're falling short two or three years of the 50-year time horizon at Uh, 60 or 80% in equities because, you know, the the safe number is technically like 3.45 or something. We ran to 3.5, so you run out a year or two short. But the upside becomes drastically higher for what's basically still the same downside. Like, you're making it almost 50 years plus or minus a year or two. But as you noted, your fifth percentile, so like the 5% worst cases, the really, really bad ones, you still go from my nest egg actually doubled to instead my nest egg more than tripled. So 50 years at 60%, my fifth percentile is 2.3 million, 50 years at 80% equities, my fifth percentile is 3.5 million. My 95th percentile, so matching same on the other end, is I'm equally likely to have 3.5 million or 89 million. (laughs) Uh, I'm equally likely to run out in 50 years as I am to have $133.9 million. Uh, Just compounding over long-term periods, especially when you get even more equities there, just frankly kind of becomes stupidly high. And, and it, it really becomes more of a function of, I got to have a withdrawal rate that's low enough to survive a horrible first decade if the first decade turns out to be horrible. And then once the bull market eventually comes, either after the first bad decade or out of the gate, I quickly get so far ahead that the only question is, where are you ratcheting? How quickly are you ratcheting? And, and how are you moving up? That, that's really what it boils down to in practice. If mean, you get the horrible decade and you're pushing your portfolio enough, yes, there is that one scenario where you barely eke it out for 50 years. But as we've said throughout, that's before you move any of the other flexibility levers that you may have along the way that even can take that one scenario where you might be cruising towards a, a, a decline and ratchet yourself higher or, or just adjust yourself so you're on a better trajectory.
0: Michael, this has been amazing. I've, I love how you were willing to take the time to break this down and then apply it to maybe what some people would consider an extreme case study, but very, very important as a way of really highlighting the value of this type of conversation. Really useful for me personally, and I believe our audience will find value as well and will be able to extrapolate to their own situation. Now, on most shows, that would be the end of the episode, but on this show, Michael, we would love to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this?
3: Uh, I think I'm ready. <laughs> Let's go for it.
1: In a world Drowning in debt and rampant consumption. Trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation. These questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat.
2: All right, Michael, question number one. What is your favorite blog, podcast, or book of all time?
3: Uh, Favorite blog, podcast, or book of all time. Um, On the podcasting end, I kind of nerd out on all of our industry stuff and and podcasts in our industry. I I sort of have a two-way tie. Barry Rutholtz's Master's in Business and uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy's Invest Like the Best. Big fan of their podcasts and, and what they're doing on both sides. You know, I, I hate to cop out on these, but on the blog end, like, I really can't say I have a favorite one. Cause I just, I'm one of those people that loves consuming a ton of information from a ton of different uh, sources. And it's actually like, it's the breadth of information and the range of it that actually sort of real, really does it for me and gets me and gets me really excited. Oh, uh, when I think about Best books and things that probably had the most impact on me—I have to go with Michael Gerber's *E Myth*. Uh, you know, as someone that's kind of built business and built career myself, and have, have lived the, as uh, uh, Gerber talks about, the challenging transition from from technician to business owner. It's a really, really powerful book about thinking about yourself differently and changing your mindset in in what you're building in your own
0: career. Man, I'm adding that back to my reading list for 2020. I think I own it, and I need to read it.
3: So yeah, we'll oh, and you definitely that. need to read. It.
0: <laughs> all right, question number two: an inflection point in your life that was especially memorable or meaningful.
3: Uh, so that's an easy one for me: taking the leap away from the firm that I worked at and out on my own. I spent my career internal for an advisory firm for about the first ten years. Made a decision in early 2008. Surely coincidental to all the stuff that happened later <laughs> that year. That you know, I just I had this passion for doing writing, speaking, research, analysis. And I wanted to make my own thing to do it and get it out there to the industry. So I, I, I launched a newsletter service and and uh, the Kitsis.com website that we still write on today and started speaking out to the industry and and publishing actually a bunch of this retirement research in early 2008. And to me, it's sort of an interesting kind of quasi-FI transition in and of itself. Like I was able to make that leap because I spent the decade of my 20s living incredibly frugally. I had a crappy like... 12-year-old used car that I paid for in cash off of eBay back in like 2002. (laughs) Uh, I split an apartment with two buddies. You know, my rent even here in the D.C. area was like $350 or $400 a month. And I had a pretty good start to my career. So by my late 20s, like I was making six figures and the total of my car payments and my uh, rent payments together was about 7% of my income or less, and had been that for the entire decade of my 20s. That's what gave me enough of a nest egg, not necessarily for retirement and full FI, and I wouldn't know what to do with myself in retirement anyways, but enough of a nest egg that I went into the founders of our firm and said, here's the deal. I would like to go do this writing, speaking nerd thing in our advisor world. I actually don't want to leave the firm completely. Like, I think there's some things I do around here that are still valuable, I would like to stay attached to the firm. I would like a little bit of a salary and health insurance benefits because I needed to solve for the health insurance problem at the time. You know, If this doesn't work out, like I've got enough saved because I've been living really frugally that I'm not actually in danger if they say no, but it would be really nice if they said yes. And the confidence that I had because of the financial strength that I built for myself, I think is the only reason I was able to go in and have that conversation in the first place. And the fact I could go in and have that conversation confidently made it happen. And was just an entire change for the trajectory of my career, of my life overall. And it, and it stemmed from you know not a total financial independence. I did need to work. I was not, not at the point where I didn't need to work. But I was at the point that if this didn't work out, I was financially safe. And that's what made it financially possible to take the leap. And that actually turned out to be the best financial thing that ever could have happened to me because that business has grown tremendously.
2: All right, Michael. Question number three, your favorite life hack. My favorite life hack? Yeah. Anything that has uh, made your life easier? Anything you've done in particular?
3: My favorite life hack at the end of the day is just letting the routine, simple things be routine and simple. I'm a big fan of doing anything I can to just, if not automate, like just reduce the amount that I have to remember stuff. So like, I, I'm someone who travels a lot. Anybody who's, well, pretty much ever been on a trip has had the experience of, oh, crap, I forgot to pack like the power cord for my laptop or the charger for my phone. And so then like we make all these lists and do all this work to make sure we always pack all the things that we need to pack to, uh, before we go. So like you know what? I just bought a second charger and a second power cord, and they sit in my travel bag, and I never remember how I have to remember to put it back and forth. And I don't have to make a whole bunch of lists of the things I need to remember because I just eliminated the need to remember it. You know, for me, and granted, this is a little bit for me, I've even ended out with a little bit of a brand of of this blue shirt. Uh, <laughs> I was going to
0: say, of, uh, you got the Steve Jobs blue shirt.
3: Yeah, like it was a subconscious thing. I would travel for conferences every now and then. I guess just it was probably my favorite shirt. So not even thinking about it. If I was traveling for a day, I always grabbed this blue shirt and pulled it off the hanger. And so – As I was going to some conferences and starting my speaking career in the early, in sort of 2008, 2009, a bunch of my friends in the conference world started kind of kindly teasing me, like, you know, we only see about three or four times a year every time you're wearing that shirt. Uh, It's a great shirt. And so I just decided to make it a thing. And so I I bought 12 of them. (laughs) I have matching a dozen blue socks. I have uh, three versions of the identical black suits that I always wear. And and it's turned into a brand. Uh, you know, our logo is literally like a nerd with glasses of goatee and, and, and a blue shirt. Brad, and look, it
0: shows up in his bitmap avatar. Uh, <laughs> <exactly. Really?
3: laughs> and uh, you know, it, like it's sort of joking and it was a fun branding thing, but there's a little bit of a life hack thing to it. Like You you wouldn't believe how much simpler your life gets when you never have to think about what you're going to wear because you basically created a uniform for
0: yourself. I love it, dude. I love it. And it's the uniform you feel comfortable in.
3: Just yes, it. it is a uniform I feel comfortable in.
0: All right. important. Now, this is actually one of my favorite questions for you specifically. Question number four, the biggest financial mistake that you've made.
3: Um, biggest financial mistake that I've made, I would, well, so I'll kind of give this a two-way tie. One, like so many people in the investment world, I had to get started by day trading my way to failure. Uh, <laughs> so I have, I have done that cycle as almost everybody has. I was coming into the industry in the late 1990s. So I had a day tech account. So, so like in, the, in the mid-1990s, I was still in uh, high school and college. I was a hardcore Magic the Gathering player. And like back then, this was when all the original Magic the Gathering stuff was happening. So I had a multi-thousand-dollar Magic the Gathering card collection, which, frankly, I wish I had kept today because it would literally be worth tens and tens of thousands of dollars. I sold it on eBay. For $2,000, I took my $2,000 to a day-tech online trading account, and I day-traded it down to zero in about six months. Oh, Because, you know, I had to get a little bit of margin in there because this was the 1990s, the tech stocks. Like, that'll really wipe you out fast. (laughs) So that was certainly early financial mistake. Learned my lesson about... Not trying to actively day trade on an ongoing basis when you're whether you're doing that between classes or now you know between jobs and work uh, it, you know when there are people who do this for a full time career and live it all day you are you are not going to win on your lunch break. The second piece that I would kind of tie to it is. You know, I don't really view it as a financial mistake, but it is technically my my largest financial loss. Uh, when I launched my own business in 2008, I actually was very nervous about markets and the economy at the time. Uh, you know, we're we're an investment management firm uh, as part of what we do for retirees. You know, our own investment research was very very negative on on markets and the economy heading into 2008 already. And so I was really, really worried uh, what was going to happen if I went and launched my own business only to have like markets melt down and, and blow up on me. And so I actually bought some options to hedge my career risk, which turned out great in 2008. <laughs> So well that I was like, you know, if you remember what it was like back in 2009, uh, you know, we didn't know if the Fed's intervention was going to work or kick off hyperinflation and do a whole bunch of other crazy stuff. So there was a, still a bunch of fear of economic meltdown, and so I re-upped a bunch of the options in 2009 and then lost 100% because oh. markets went up and didn't keep going down. Uh, so it actually served its hedging purpose. Uh, it made me much more comfortable when I went out for the launch. I didn't put a ton of dollars there, but enough that. If my business had not gone well in 2009, I had enough money that I'd made on the options to make up what I was going to lose in income. But uh, hedging two years in a row did not work so well because the market bounced back by the second year. Fortunately, by then the business was doing well and growing very well, and so I didn't need the hedge dollars anymore. By just sheer financial dollars, that was uh, that hedging again in 2009 and having the market go up was by far the worst economic loss I've ever had in sheer dollar terms.
2: All right Michael question number 5 the advice you would give your younger self.
3: The advice I would give my younger self um frankly not a lot different from what I actually did you know I I part of it may just be my I don't know my attitude for life like everything's a lesson everything's something you learn you know there are certainly uh things I have done that I do not want to do again a good friend of mine calls them afgos Another freaking growth opportunity uh, <laughs> uh, that come along and hit us from time to time. So I've had my share of AFCOS, but I, I don't I don't really know if I would tell my younger self to to change or doing anything different. I, I think the thing I would probably reinforce for my younger self, and unfortunately I, I did this anyway, so it worked out well, but might have been a little bit of dumb luck, is the just the sheer ludicrous value of investing in yourself, even possibly to the extent of not saving in retirement accounts. And one of the things I figured out by about 6 or 7 years into my career is that I stopped saving in my retirement accounts and I started buying education for myself, which is why I have two master's degrees and a whole long of whole long list of degree uh, of designations and and industry certifications. And you know, I can do the math as well as anyone of what happens when you get, you know, 50 years of compounding in your Roth IRA tax-free when you do it in your 20s as I could have at the time. But frankly, I've I've more than 10x my income since then, driven very heavily off of the knowledge that I gained and all the reinvestments I made into myself. And that 10x income I'm going to earn for several decades more because I actually really like the work that I do now that I've gotten to a place where I can do the work that I like and I can get paid well for it. And so I created far more wealth economic value and what ultimately can drive towards financial independence for me now by not plowing dollars away to save for retirement and and FI in my 20s, but plowing the dollars into myself so that I could have a whole lot of career growth in my 30s. And I'm now in a completely different place economically in my 40s than I would have been had I merely been diligently saving all along. And I I think sometimes we really underestimate the economic value of investing in ourselves when we've got multi-decade time horizons to work. Even if you want to get to a point where it's FI and you're only doing the optional work that you want to do, if you invest in yourself, you're probably going to have some value to create in the economy, you're probably going to find a way to get paid for it. And as we said earlier, you know, $20,000 side hustles is like a half million dollars on your FI egg. And if you have a deep expertise and you consult for larger numbers than that, you quickly move yourself forward on the FI path by lifting the value of your human capital first and reinvesting that into your financial capital second.
0: I love it. And it's something I've heard echoed by Scott Trench when we interviewed him as well. Invest in yourself. Great advice. Now, we do have a bonus question for you. What purchase have you made over the past 12 months that has added the most value to your life? Oh, man. What purchase have I made over the past
3: 12 months that added the most value to my life? Could be a book. Um,
0: Could be some self-education, self-improvement. What do you got?
3: uh, (laughs) I feel bad. This is like just the nerdiness in me coming out. Uh, Buying a high-end laptop. Bought a really nice high-end, like Dell XPS 15 laptop. I'm a person that, in part, to to keep some semblance of my own work life balance, and and someone who travels a lot, like I have to be productive from the road. I have to stay productive from the road. I have to stay productive where I am, because otherwise, it spills over when I get home, and then I got to work on evenings and weekends. And I don't get as so much time with my kids, and so buying just a very nice high quality laptop so that i am instantly productive wherever i am including buying a mobile hotspot to go with it so i don't have to rely on hotel wi-fis and tethering to my smartphone that may or may not have enough battery itself just giving myself the opportunity to be maximally productive when i want to be productive gives me more opportunity to both do good work in my career and eventually have better work-life balance because it keeps work from spilling over And, and i'm I'm constantly amazed at how often people in their working world or their business world don't spend on things that can improve their own productivity and basically handicap themselves and then wonder why they're running out of time and all the work is spilling over and all the rest of the challenge they have. So uh, just that was really powerful for making sure that I can stay maximally productive when it's time for me to do work to get work done and not putting up with excuses like, oh, my laptop's being really slow today, and oh, the hotel Wi-Fi isn't working.
0: Well, I can tell you, Brad and I were both smiling as you were sharing your story. Effectively, you said you hadn't reached financial independence yet, but in in our opinions, you had reached a fully funded lifestyle change, and you were able to go into your employer and make a quote-unquote unreasonable request, and you got it because the benefits of financial independence are not binary one and zero, but you accrue power all along this journey. I appreciate you sharing not only your personal story, but also – really the tactics, the data, and applying that to specific case studies. I know our audience got value as well. People listening to this, I mean, you mentioned your productivity. You're one of the most productive uh, people that uh, we have ever met. I believe you, on top of all the writing that you you do and the work that you do and the businesses that you've started, you do, I believe, somewhere between 50 to 70 speaking events a year, uh, which probably contributes a little bit to the travel that you mentioned. If someone is (laughs) someone's listening to this, they want to find out more about you. They want to connect with you, connect with your content. What is the best way for someone to do that?
3: Kitsus.com. So K-I-T-C-E-S.com. I was not so lucky on the uh, immigration translation boat, but uh, at least if you see the name, it is me or my immediate family. Uh, Kitsis.com has all of our content and and all of the related business and companies that we started in the advisor world. We do a lot of stuff for advisors. We do a lot of stuff for retirees. We do some work for uh, folks that are in the FI world as well. And so you can find all of that at com Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right, my friends. I hope you got value from today's episode and you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point. Go ahead and press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on, whether it be your podcast via Apple Stitcher, Spotify, or YouTube. And if you have not yet checked out our YouTube channel, you can watch video of this at choosify.tv. We're bringing it to you in an extra dimension. Uh, if you are hearing about this idea of financial independence, and maybe some of the terms that we talked about, the data that we talked about was just a little bit next level. You're not quite there yet, and you're trying to get some context for the conversation that we had today. By far, the easiest way to start is just to aptly go to choosify.com slash start. There, we've created an illustrated guide to FI, which kind of walks you through some of the tenets of financial independence and a very easy to comprehend manual. And it also will reference you to some of those essential listening guides, those essential listening episodes that talk about really the backbone of what we were discussing today, making it very easy to get into and get started on your own path to financial independence. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road, less traveled.
1: You've been listening to choose FI radio podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth, one life hack at a time.